0: Podcast. Today, we are taking a look at the issue of presidential succession in Egypt, and specifically the prospect that President Mubarak's son, Gamal Mubarak, will in inherit the presidency. Arabist contributor and Cairo based journalist Ursula Lindsay sat down with her old friend Joshua Stacker. Josh is an assistant professor of political science at Kent State University. He's written on political succession in Egypt and Syria, and is an expert on Egypt's ruling National Democratic Party and the Muslim Brotherhood. Old Arabist readers may remember him as a frequent contributor to the site in 2005. In this interview, we discuss Gamal's political rise in the last decade and his prospects for the presidency.
1: I thought we would start out today just um, describing what the situation in Egypt is right now. Uh, You're back here at the moment, and tell us what you see.
0: Um, Well, uh, this is... um, um, a point in Egypt's time where we're really getting to the sort of end of um, the Hosni Mubarak era. Although he still receives sort of pictorial coverage in the newspapers, one doesn't get the sense that he's actually involved in the day-to-day affairs of running the country like he was six or seven years ago. That said, what we are seeing is the sort of um, much more public role of the Gamal Mubarak elite, um, and that includes uh, the people that control many of the financial uh, financial ministries in the country, such as the Minister of Investment and the Minister of Finance himself. So we've seen a a real transformation, Uh, and this transformation started in 2002, but it really picked up in earnest in 2004 where we're moving from uh, Egyptian politicians and members of parliament that have a very good idea of the local areas, how families are connected, who can win in an election in the countrysides, to an elite that is much more concerned with how they're viewed in London, and particularly Washington, how they can spin sort of media topics, how they can manage the spectacle of politics.
1: Are there differences in the policies advocated by these two camps?
0: oh yeah i would i would say there are um I would say that the um previous um elite or the the sort of the elite that's more closely guarded to or connected to Hosni Mubarak was um much more concerned with sort of classic populist notions of um politics where you'd have massive payouts to um various segments of society um, keeping prices low keeping you know subsidies on goods trying to make life as manageable for as many people as possible whereas the new elite um, are very much involved in a sort of um, accelerating the process of uh, two Egypt's that are very much segregated from one another um, and we see this in all sorts of um, local, or we see this in all sorts of different types of um, expressions, whether they're sort of air-conditioned Starbucks-type coffee shops all over the capital, or whether we're talking about, you know, the largest mall in the Middle East, like you have out at City Stars. Um, the clientele that are serving these places, as opposed to the coffee shops in downtown Cairo, um, are very different. And the the project to try to win people over for the Gamal Mubarak uh, succession project, is really about providing the small middle class and the very um, sort of small upper elite sections of society a reason why uh, the future with Gamal Mubarak, under Gamal Mubarak's leadership, or as we transition into a post-Nezu Mubarak Egypt, uh, a reason why they need to continue to support um, what's there in, in ruling in place.
1: All right. So you brought up the succession issue. President Mubarak is now 81, 81. and um, he's he's not looking particularly healthy. And he himself has said, I believe, that he will serve until the last beat of his heart or some such um, expression. So when the president does pass away, what are the scenarios obviously there is the succession scenario in which his son Gamal will take will replace him. Um, how would that scenario play out, and are there any alternative scenarios?
0: Um, unfortunately, I think that the the leading scenario uh, will be that Gamal Mubarak uh, will assume the presidency, um, and I believe this because they've had a lot of time to prepare him. Um, he has essentially been at this since 1999. Um, So um, you've seen the slow introduction of Gamal Mubarak. 2005 was really a a high point for this group that surrounds him because they were effectively in charge of the presidential elections uh, as well as the amendment to Article 76, which allowed that election to happen.
1: Just to specify, this is the elections, supposedly the first competitive elections in which Hosni Mubarak was running against other candidates, although those candidacies were not particularly a challenge to him?
0: No. Uh, the first presidential election uh, in 2005 was, uh, was, was, was was more or less a joke. The Gamal Mubarak elite was also sort of uh, initially sort of responsible for the um, parliamentary elections in 2005, but after the first two rounds produced such big um, increases in the Muslim Brotherhood's representation and um, actually poorer performance by NDP candidates. Um, The whole idea that Gamal Mubarak predicated his experiment on was that he wanted to revamp and reorganize and update or modernize the National Democratic Party. Kind of proved to be kind of a a resounding failure anyway. Um, But, you know, the the, the process has moved on. Um, They have adjusted uh, by amending the Constitution. The 2007 constitutional amendments, in which they changed 34 articles of the Constitution, um, were really uh, probably the last uh, prep ground that um, we've seen to help ensure a Gamal Mubarak um, candidacy for the, in the future presidential election. We've also seen them crack down on the Muslim Brotherhood, which is the only opposition force in this country, that's capable of mobilizing any sort of electoral constituency. The government and the political system here has made it very clear that um, there is no opposition allowed to um, organize. Uh, and in the face of that, a Gamal Mubarak presidency almost seems um, the most likely scenario. If you look at how the amendments to the Constitution have happened, and if you look at how the parties organized, um, the There's only about 20 people that could possibly be nominated out of that two million person strong party.
1: You mentioned these amendments. Um, could you give a few examples of the ways in which these amendments have made it extremely difficult for anybody else besides Gamal Mubarak and, as you mentioned, a handful of people to run?
0: Well, essentially, there's two things going on. First was the uh, Article 76, which was amended in um, May of 2005. And what this does is it sets down very strong conditions about who can run in a presidential election. So um, legal parties, of which I think there's around 20 or 21, um, um, but out of those 21, I think only four or five have actually ever put anybody into parliament. So you have basically 15 parties that have never even won one electoral seat in their history. Um, Of those 21 parties, um, if you serve on the sort of higher um, um, councils of these parties, then you would be allowed to nominate a candidate for president. There is also a restriction, which I think they waive, that you had to have at least 5% uh, membership, uh, uh, representation in Parliament, which, of course, none of these opposition parties meet. But I think they waived that because even that was a little bit too extreme, because none of the opposition parties could even nominate anybody. So there's two things going on. Um, you have to be a legal party.
1: Which the Brotherhood isn't.
0: Which the Brotherhood is not. And you also have to uh, be a member of one of these high, uh, the, high, uh, the higher committees within the party. So if you're just a normal member from you know, somewhere in Alexandria, you can't, run for, you can't even be nominated for the NDP for president. You've got to sit on this sort of higher committee. And um, what this means in terms of the, the National Democratic Party is the, the general secretariat, so the top 20, 25 people in the party.
1: So in effect, the only challenge to him could come from within the party. The only thing they need to work on is controlling their own party?
0: Exactly. And um, um, there is a stipulation in the 2005 constitutional amendment um, that says independent candidates can run Um, But uh, they need to get, uh, you know, um, so many signatures in parliament and so many in the Shore Council, and then they need, uh, I think, 10 people from 14 different governments to sign on to this in the local councils. So that would be the route that the Muslim Brotherhood would have to go if they even wanted to nominate somebody. But um, the NDP controls... uh, over 99% of the local councils in this country, they control uh, uh, basically all of the Shore Council. And they have a commanding control over um, the the um, People's Assembly. So it would be virtually impossible for even a Muslim Brotherhood candidate to even run. In effect, the only thing you could really have, unless you waived all these sort of requirements on legal parties, is an independent candidate who's been pre-vetted and pre-approved by the NDP to run against whoever the NDP nominates. And what you said was very right. So what it's really about, it's about a game of controlling uh, the internal dynamics of the National Democratic Party. What you're really talking about in terms of pure political power within the party um, is a matter of four or five people. Um, And the strongest one uh, happens to be genetically connected to the president, uh, and he also happens to be the youngest one um, the other people that could potentially do this would be someone like Zachary Azmi or um, um sharif and uh, both of these um, gentlemen are in their 70s as well. But it even goes further than that. If you look at how the amendment was written, it basically says that the president of the republic has to, if, if the president of the republic has to come from a party, then it it, it basically excludes anybody that's not in the party, um, and that would be the military and security services who are not allowed to be members of the party. So it puts the uh, military in a very difficult position that if they would decide to make a move against the ruling party, it would in effect become an internal coup because they would have to break the constitution to stop the inheritance of power. If it is Gamal Mubarak, um, now, to be sure, uh, the Gamal Mubarak elite will spin this as an election and as a fair process, and uh, he's the most qualified candidate, and 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 um, whatnot. Um, but it's really a transfer of power, and and um, if we can say anything about this, um, I think that I don't want to portray this as the president or the first lady sitting in the palace in Heliopolis, um, Machiavellianly sort of planning the sort of succession like it's some sort of family dynasty. The way that these successions have played out in other places, like Syria, like Azerbaijan, like um, Togo, like even even in North Korea, what you end up seeing is um, not so much it's being driven by a personalistic ruler, as much as you have um, the elite looking to safeguard their status quo, safeguard their positions, and um, they invest in the candidate that they see as um, best likely to continue their positions in this society. It's very much going to be an elite-driven event, um, which brings us to the question of the military, of course.
1: Right. Right. That- That was going to be my next question. You mentioned the military making a move, and I think this scenario gets discussed often or brought up often as if this was the alternative to the succession would be a sort of military intervention of some sort.
0: Well, uh, I mean, look, um, it it could happen. To say that it cannot happen um, would be um, disingenuous. However, I think that the likelihood of a military direct military intervention into this um, situation um, is extremely unlikely. I think that military intervention is an unlikely event because um, the American and Egyptian military relationship is very strong and founded on um, them sort of being in the background. And I think if they take a more overt um, ruling, directly ruling um, Status, I think it complicates um, how those interactions happen. I also think that the Egyptian military and the Israeli military are um, on quite good terms. And again, if they come to the forefront and actually have to rule the country, it could cause more problems than the current status quo. Um, so I think everybody's more or less happy with having um, um, some sort of. Civilian politician as president. Now, um, and this brings us to the thing so, for there not to be military intervention in the succession scenario, they've got to be sure that their status in society will continue or improve. And I think that um, the Gamal Mubarak elite are very conscious of this, very aware of this, and I think they're on a learning curve on how to deal with the military. And, I mean, frankly, there's not a whole lot of alternatives in the military. Um, you know, the leading candidate would be someone like Omar Suleiman, who's now 71, 72 years old. Um, so I think the argument you're going to hear is like, well, they were thinking of having a military officer, but it was going to be someone very old, and it's not good to be constantly changing your leaders. It's bad for, you know, Egypt's stability. So we went with the younger candidate. Um, I think that um, as long as the military can exert the sort of influence that it has, the sort of informal influence, the massive economic influence, there's no real reason for them to kind of step out from behind the curtain and actually start directly running the country. It can keep up this myth if Gamal Mubarak takes over, the myth between the sort of dynamic between the military and the civilian, and I think that it looks overall much better um, if Gamal Mubarak takes over on all these different fronts. Uh, But again, as I mentioned with the succession, it will be an elite-driven um, moment. So um, the central players within the military, the central players within the ruling party, um, will have to come together and come together on a compromise candidate. Um, and I think that candidate will be Gamomo Bark. If the military elite are satisfied that under a Gamomo Bark, candidacy or presidency, that their um, privileges will um, remain the same or get better, then they're likely to sign on to the project.
1: You mentioned the relationship between the U.S. military and the Egyptian military, and I was going to ask you just what you think the U.S. view and the U.S. role might be um, as to who will succeed President Mubarak.
0: Um, well, I mean, I, I, of course, have no idea what's going on in the halls of the State Department in Washington, D.C., but I would bet that they are making a, um, um unstated um, hedge that it will be Gamal Mubarak. Um, and, um, you know, there, there's the sort of public um, policy, which is we're not going to comment on this. We are going to remain neutral. This is an Egyptian affair, and Egyptians have to sort this out for themselves, Um, uh, So the official position from Washington is that we're not going to comment on Egyptian succession. It's a domestic issue. It's an internal issue. We're not going to interfere in Egyptian affairs. And that is the right position to have. Um, It sounds very good. Um, The problem is that the actions coming out of Washington in particular um, do not match that um, rhetoric. Um, Gamal Mubarak, we know of, um, went to Washington in uh, May of 2006. He made a visit to Washington, uh, to the White House, uh, under the auspices to meet Stephen Hadley. We know during that visit he also met with um, Condoleezza Rice, um, then George George, President George Bush, and Vice President Cheney. Um, None of this was on the official record because it was supposedly all informal, and these were called drop by visits. Um, This became something known as the secret visit in the Egyptian press at the time. But, um Gamal Mubarak came out and defended this, and said that he was just in town on personal business, and that you know it it there was nothing secret about it, but you know more recently, under the Obama administration, Gamal Mubarak has also made a trip to washington d c and there he met with the Senate Foreign Relations Committee head John Kerry, and he met with the house um Foreign Relations Committee, who's a republican um so What we're really seeing here is bipartisan partisanship in terms of um, this policy of they're acting neutral, but they're meeting with and granting legitimacy to Gamal Mubarak when the fact remains that he has never stood for any single elected position. And um, his only role in Egyptian society is to run an important but nevertheless unaccountable secretariat within the ruling National Democratic Party. So you have an unelected, unaccountable um, politician who is genetically connected to the current president who gets privileged and special access in Washington. And by the way, the meetings that he had in the House and the Senate, um, there were no comments out of the offices of either the senators or the representatives. So you have this policy of um, official neutrality, but there's nothing neutral about it it's a very, they, 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 they are actively participating in this decision, whether they um, are verbalizing it or not. And um, if they're not interested in hereditary succession, they should stop participating in it. So, um, yeah, uh, you know, I, I generally sp- think that the United States has very long interest. interest. Um, it, it's a special relationship they have with Egypt, but it's structured in a way that um, they've gambled a lot of the, future of the Middle East, or their participation in the Middle East, on Egypt, in terms of being an Arab partner and whatnot. The uh, political elite in America tend to understand the status quo in many of the same terms of the Egyptian political elite. And um, so that, that, that's kind of leading to a tacit support to, for Gamal Mubarak. And, you know, there's all sorts of other things, business interests and all these other things that um, Gamal Mubarak is a good sign of continuity for the American political elite and the economic elite. This is good for business as well. So I think we can't really kind of discount that either. Um, but yeah, this policy of neutrality when really they're actively participating in the decision with their behaviors by granting meetings and access and these things sort of speaks to their role.
1: So if there's, a, if there's an elite consensus on the uh, advantages of a succession, What about popular opinion or popular reaction? I mean, I feel like there was a lot of criticism when the idea of Gamal Mubarak succeeding his father sort of first started appearing in the press and obviously there was campaigns against this and opposition newspapers writing about this a lot. Do you think that public opinion has come to accept this as an inevitability more in Egypt?
0: Yeah, I do sense that there is a sort of inevitability, uh, that people don't feel like they have much say in politics. They don't really understand how to mobilize against it. The state security apparatus is so um, penetrated the society that um, even basic levels of opposition politics are discouraged and intimidated. And so um, I think people in this sense have kind of, Resign themselves to the fact that a Gamal Mubarak presidency is coming, or is likely to come, and um, they're trying to prepare their futures in accordance with that plan to see how they can best benefit or maintain their their their, their positions. Um, it really doesn't seem to me like the people uh, feel like there's much um, to gain from overtly coming out against a Gamal Mubarak presidency. And I would say that, you know, uh, it's not that, you know, uh, the poor Egyptian masses have just kind of uh, apathetic and just kind of fallen into this. They've been very well trained by a very sophisticated and very aggressive authoritarian regime that has forced this acquiescence on them. If they were given a choice, I doubt very many of them would, freely to this, but the fact that they're not given a choice um, allows them to kind of legitimate and rationalize in their minds and how they approach their days that this is probably the best scenario.
1: Finally, I lied. I think I said I had a last question about three questions ago. Um, So this whole conversation has been sort of starting from the (laughs) assumption that uh, Hosni Mubarak's presidency may end in the near future, though this is an assumption that people have been making, in fact, for for years. Um, Looking back on the Mubarak presidency, and it's been a very long one, 28 years, perhaps you could talk a bit about what you think are its defining characteristics, or what's the Mubarak legacy to Egypt?
0: What has come out of this 28, 30 years of Mubarak rule? Been a lot of plans and a lot of um, talk, um, but it's never really come to fruition. And we're dealing with probably one of the most risk-averse presidents in the entire Middle East. He's a very conservative president, and he's made the calculation that as long as Egypt doesn't sort of implode, that he's done a good job. Um, the fact is that he hasn't taken many steps to really develop the country, and um, the gap between the rich and the poor is widening, the infrastructure is um, deteriorating, um, and, and the fact of the matter is, is there's really no one thing that we can kind of point to and say, wow, that was Hosni Mubarak's real contribution to um, Egypt's development. So I think his legacy is one of um, a bunch of parliaments that were basically unconstitutional, um, uh, massive vote rigging. Um, lots of talk about how Egyptians are not ready for democracy. The irony didn't seem to be lost on him at all in 2005 when he said it would be a generation before Egyptians were ready for democracy. And the fact of the matter, he'd been in power for 25 years, and that is effectively a generation. He's been a very mediocre leader in that sense. He's been a very staunch ally of the United States, particularly after 1991. Um, Whether Hezbollah is fighting Israel or israel's fighting gaza um the fact that you know he'll just openly come out on the american side or on the israeli side and he's effectively become the symbol of the international blockade against gaza kind of astonishes me um, he's been so conservative in his approach that um he's basically took over the keys that were left to him by the uh, by the previous president and war and he Hasn't really done much updating of the house. Um, it's just been very much static, and he's going to leave his um, successor, whether it's his son or whether it's another person, um, with a very, very major mess. So, what
1: what could, what could we expect from a Gamal Mubarak presidency? What how how do you envisage this?
0: Um, well, uh, you know, I what I've been trying to to emphasize to um, people that I've had the opportunity to speak to on this issue um, in the States is that um, it's not so much the struggle for succession, the lead-up to the struggle for succession. Um, I think that a lot of the, the sort of framework for this has been, will the military accept it? How would it happen? What, what are the various scenarios that lead up to this? When the fact of the matter is, is if we accept that Gamal Mubarak is coming, and I think there's a lot of evidence that would make that a likely scenario, then um, it, 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 the whole struggle succession, succession struggle scenario is kind of a, a misnomer, because uh, Egyptian politics really don't really start up again until he takes power. And um, he effectively has to start from day one um, negotiating and managing the different society inputs and policy inputs that um, even an authoritarian president has to deal with. Now, I've had the opportunity to uh, meet Gamal Mubarak uh, three times in my life, and I've seen him speak and give press conferences probably three or four other different times. Um, and he's a very well-trained um, politician. He studied politics. He studied um, rhetoric. His English is flawless. His fosha is flawless. His Imea is flawless. A lot of people would say that he's not charismatic. I- I'm not really concerned about questions of char- charisma, um, um, but um, I think that he does quite well at the podium. and. Um, the spin machine that he has created around him, and, and these guys have studied the British Labor Party under Tony Blair quite closely, um, is, is, is quite um, advanced and, and sophisticated in terms of this sort of Western style or what they think to be modern politics. Um, now that all said, um, Gamal Mubarak has never once, in all the times that I've ever seen him or all the other press accounts that I've read of him, ever mentioned the word democracy. They are very clear about term limits. They're not into them. Um, so in that respect, it's going to be a very sort of um, honest type of regime where they're not going to do this game where they put term limits and then at the end of the term limits extend them or talk spend a lot of time talking about democracy when they have no intention of really implementing it or being put in a corner where they would have to try to do something. Elections will remain a staple of something they do, but they're more of a spectacle than they are anything else. So um, I think that, you know, when Gamal Mubarak becomes president, there really is no um, definitive point that we can look to and say, well, that will be the end of the Gamal Mubarak presidency. Structures very much influence and guide people's behavior and the decisions that they make and options that they have. And if you have a politician who does not have a sort of end in sight, then um, usually what you get is a politician that will do anything to stay in their positions.